Well, good morning. Cultural Research Center in uh, Arizona Christian University uh, did a survey, and then they summarized that survey, and the survey was entitled, U.S. Moral Freefall. Survey finds America traditional moral pillars are fading away. And the author summarizes this uh, study with a survey. She writes, our nation is facing a potential moral freefall, unthinkable to earlier generations. With a majority of Americans today no longer embracing the values of honesty, respect for the rule of law, the sanctity of life, and traditional sexual morality when facing moral issues. She goes on to summarize this research, writing, ongoing research paints a bleak picture of our nation's radically shifting landscape, with Americans no longer looking to biblical truth for moral guidance and increasingly rejecting traditional values and have defined us as a na- that have defined us as a nation since our founding. As a result, as a nation, we are radically redrawing moral boundaries. Now, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. In fact, this survey was taken three years ago. It's just my observation, we're on a moral freefall. I mean, think about what we're seeing that we never thought before. I, and I'm, I'm kind of old, not ancient, but, <laughs> but I can remember when there was the oasis of Judeo-Christian ethic that uh, sort of uh, surrounded our culture, but that oasis is dried up. It's no more. I mean, I don't have to tell you what's happening in the, in the public square today. But just let me review some of it. And unless your head's in the sand, I just want to show you. When we look around at our culture today, what do we see in the public square? We see drag shows promoting even, promoted even among children at schools and public libraries. We, we, we see gender dysphoria. That is the satisfaction of one's gender being promoted and championed, and even at times hostile to God's divine plan in creation, male and female, he created them. We see the continued perversion of and and twisting of God's design for marriage between a man and a woman. We see increased violence in our cities, and sadly even among our young people. We see some state legislators willing to pass laws that make it a crime to speak out against sin and unrighteousness and, in fact, makes it harder for some to live a righteous lifestyle. We've just seen recently corporations and and sporting teams who are blatantly promoting immoral and perverted lifestyles that go against God's design, mocking the moral foundations once respected and acknowledged. And it's even affected the workplace, hasn't it? I know of stories where, where job security is based, increasingly based on not, not the quality of work you do, but whether you, you fall in line with not just tolerating unrighteous lifestyles, but accepting them and endorsing them. Right. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in a world collapsing morally. 
That, that certainly brings, should bring to us sorrow and tears and, and heartaches. As we see what's happening around us and we cry out to God, do something. Some of us probably are somewhat fearful, maybe in a little bit of despair, because the darkness seems to be growing darker, doesn't it? So how do we respond to what is happening around us? Or as Francis Schaeffer so famously said, how then should we live in this culture now that seems to be heading south, a moral freefall? Well, the Bible's not silent on it, right? Because uh, in Ephesians 5, when Jonathan's preaching through that passage, he gave us some guidance, Paul did, of how to live in this kind of dark world. For instance, in Ephesians 5, and Jonathan preached on this, where Paul says, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So this is one of many passages that gives us guidance of how we should then live in light of where we are in the times that we live. But I want to take you to a passage you may not think too much about. It's Psalm 11. Where, where David was experiencing a lot of what we're experiencing in his culture, in his times. And, and so David uh, writes this psalm. It's only seven verses. It's one of the shortest psalms in, in, in the book of Psalms. But David writes, and we're going to see as we read in just a moment, a very central question. It is this. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And to answer that question, brothers and sisters, I think will help you and me to understand where we are in the times we live and how to live in these perilous times for the glory of God. I invite you to stand as I read the passage, Psalm 11. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. Well, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who does violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. You may be seated as I pray. Lord Jesus, we want you to be the center of, of this sermon this morning, this passage, because it speaks about you. Lord, we want by your spirit to encourage us and open our eyes to the truth and how to apply this, especially in the times that we live. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart as I proclaim your word this morning, that it would be acceptable in your sight, that you would anoint me and we would open our hearts to your truth. And we would leave this place. Christ has been exalted. And we have hope and faith in him alone. In his precious name. Amen. Amen. 
You notice David opens up this short psalm with, In the Lord I take refuge. That's a little unusual because in Psalm 7-1, he's, he's talking to the Lord and he says, O Lord my God, in you I take refuge. But here he seems to be talking to someone else, declaring that truth. So why did he open with this statement? Well, he had some advisors, we think, or, or friends who were advising him something different because they were fearful of what was going on around them. They were panicking. And so in the care of David and, and even themselves, they, they gave some, what we might say, some bad advice to David and what he should do in the midst of the threat. Well, what was the threat? Well, verse 2. David talks to them and says, How can you say to my soul, you know, flee like a bird to a mountain, your mountain? If I was writing this and included Diane's cat in this, I would probably say... The 15, 16 pound behemoth in our house, and anytime anybody comes over, what this cat does, she just runs and hides. So you could say, David, why don't you flee to the mountain? Or why don't you be like that cat? Just flee to the couch. There's a threat. What's the threat? What's the danger? Well, look at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark the upright at heart. In other words, David's saying, in other words, they're saying to David, hey, David, there's danger out there. We're, we're no longer the moral majority. Uh, the wicked are after you. You better run. Run to the mountains. Now, now who are the wicked here? Well, it's interesting that in Psalm 10, in fact, you're trying to understand the Psalms. There were 150 Psalms, but they were put together by an editor, we think. And there's five books of the Psalm. The first two Psalms are the introduction to the Psalms and, and set the themes of the rest of the book. But it's interesting in the Psalm preceding uh, Psalm 11, Psalm 10, David describes a little bit about who the wicked are. In chapter 10, Psalm, reading verse 3, now, listen as I read this because there's some words I want to highlight that gives some understanding of why David's advisors were sort of, hey, you better get out of town. You're a target of the wicked. So David writes, in arrogance, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. He says, let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and one greedy for gain curses and renounces God. And says in his heart, you will not call me to account. He goes on to describe the wicked, verses 10 and 11. He said, the helpless are crushed, they sink down, they fall by his, the wicked might. And the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never, he will never see it. And then David poses the question in, in Psalm 10, why do the wicked renounce God and say in their heart, you will not call me into account? And, and what David is saying there in the Psalms is that the, the, the wicked, the sinner, a proud, arrogant, almost practical atheist who uh, renounce God, oppress the righteous and oppress the poor, and they can just go out and do anything they want to. And so now David's experiencing that threat, and so are the righteous. 
I mean, David's advisors were saying in essence to him, hey, David, look around, buddy. <laughs> Keep your eyes open. You see what's really happening? It's a jungle out there, David. And the lions are after us. We're the prey. Times have changed, David. We're not the majority anymore. And we're now the hunted. So there's no safe place, David. <laughs> Don't hang around in Jerusalem. Run for your life. Run to the mountains. That's a safe place. And then at verse 3, the question is very penetrating, isn't it? If the foundations are destroyed, what are the righteous to do? The New Living Translation translates it a little differently. This helps us understand it. It says, the foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? Does that sound familiar? Perhaps today? Or, or the, uh, the message paraphrasing, admittedly a free paraphrase, but it helps me understand it. The bottoms dropped out of the country. Good people don't have a chance. It's an apt description, I think, of where we are today. And I've lived long enough to see it happen. We look around and the bottom seemingly has dropped out. The world that we live in, that once had a semblance of some kind of moral foundation, but now has collapsed before our eyes in the culture. And frankly, we're increasingly, and I think you can realize this, we're increasingly as God's people, as followers of Christ, we can be identified and as outliers, as misfits, as roadblocks, as mis- malcontents, because we're, we're resisting, and we're lamenting, we're grieving over what's happening in our culture today and the sin that is destroying not only the sinner, but others around them in our nation. And by the way, Jesus, give us a heads up. He said, you know, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. So let's not be surprised because we have lived in this moral oasis, if you will, and now it's dried up. The Judeo-Christian ethic really doesn't have much semblance anymore. They at least gave some guardrails. And now we're in a, what some would say a post-Christian age or a post-truth age. That's where we live. And yet God's people, it grieves us, doesn't it? I'm not talking about the nation. It grieves us because of sin and destruction and what's happening in people's lives. And we even have some fear about the next generation, our kids and grandkids. I want you to notice that David did not deny the reality of what was happening. He didn't say, hey, cool it, guys. I mean, it's not that bad. I mean, hey, I mean, you're blowing it way out of proportion. He doesn't say that. He, He doesn't push back. But brothers and sisters, what he did was this. He said, I'm not going to listen to you and your advice. I'm not going to follow the counsel of despair. I, I'm not going to live in fear and panic and run. I'm reminded of the Proverbs. You probably read it. It's a great proverb. But in Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. So what David is simply saying here, he's saying, hey, 
I'm not running to the hills. I run to my Lord, who's my refuge. That's right. There's no better place to be when times are tough and there's chaos. Let me ask the question. You know, David, okay, the Lord's your refuge, but why do you have that confidence? Why, why aren't you fearful? Why aren't you panicking over what's happening around you? Well, I think he answers that question. Because he basically has been having us, and the advisors certainly, were to look around, David, what's happening. Now, here's what he's going to do. He says, oh, I don't want you to look around. I want you to look up. Amen. I want you to look up and see the God who really is my refuge. And why I have confidence in him, no matter what the chaos in the world is and the darkness. And so what we're going to see here, I'm going to suggest to you in the rest of this passage, four key truths about the Lord who is his refuge and our refuge in perilous times. The first one surfaces, the first reality, the Lord who is our refuge rules as the sovereign king over all. They've said, you want to know I have faith and I'm not fleeing, but I'm not in a panic mode, not, that he's not grieved by the sin around him. He said, hey, the Lord reigns. Amen. He reigns. And here's how he words it. So the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the, where? Heavens. And what's a throne? Well, it's not the type of throne that King Charles is sitting on right now that has no absolute power. <laughs> I don't want to offend any Britishers today, but, you know, not that big a deal. Well, a throne is the seat of power. It's the highest place in a realm or a nation where a king rules, a ruler reigns, acts on behalf of his people, and exercises justice. And so David is saying, listen, look up. Look up and see my Lord, and he's reigning as king. Now, what makes his reign so different from the rulers of today? Well, number one, it's different because of where it is. Where is it? In heaven. That is, he's above everything. He has authority, not just over the planet, but over the galaxies, and over every molecule and atom, and over demons and devils, and the unseen world. Our Lord, who is our refuge, he reigns over all. He has all rule and authority. No one trumps his authority. No one ever will. What makes his throne so different, his rule so different from... The earthly rulers, number two, it's an eternal reign. It's not one and done. It is forever. Amen. Psalmist says in Psalm 9, 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. Praise the Lord. You begin to understand why David's saying, oh, the Lord's my refuge. Let me tell you, he reigns, he rules, he's in control of everything. And by the way, brothers and sisters, you probably know this, but let's remind ourselves, the one seated on the throne was once dead. It is now alive. That's right. And he's the king on this throne. Amen. His name is Jesus. The writer of Hebrews points that out very clearly as he quotes Psalm 45. He's talking about the superiority of Jesus 
And he says, but of the Son, that is Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of right, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Our king is a risen king. He's conquered death. Right. He's conquered Satan. And he reigns over all. So, Harry, what, what does this mean, though? That he's sovereign, risen Lord. And what does it mean we can trust him as our refuge? Well, I think we recognize that we're living in the midst of chaotic and dark days. When it, when it seems like everything in our culture, in our world, everything that's defined sort of right and wrong has been upended and it's collapsing and raveling before our eyes. And what David is doing, he's reminding his listeners and reminding us, listen, we got a God who rules. And by the way, that absolute seat of power is not in the Oval Office. That's right. that, that uh, seat of power is not in the Kremlin. That seat of power is not in Beijing. That seat of power is not in number 10 Downing Street. My brothers and sisters, we, need, we have a God who is a refuge. The Lord is our refuge, and he reigns. He's sovereign over all. That's right. Amen. Abraham Kuyper was a uh, prime minister of the Netherlands in the early 1900s. He's a Christian statesman. And he made a uh, very significant statement that you probably heard quoted, but I'm going to quote it about Christ's sovereignty over all. He writes, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, it's mine. Amen. It's mine. He said, well, the world seems, ca- he's in control. Yes, he my Bible says he can use the wicked for the day of disaster. He's in control of everything. And David says, that's why I trust him. Scripture constantly reminds us, doesn't it? That we as God's people are not in the hands of fate. Chaos, devils, demons, even wicked people who might mock and attack the very name of Christ and his people. But brothers and sisters, we are in the secure hands and under the reign of our loving, sovereign, risen Lord who is powerfully at work in everything for our good and his glory. Everything. There's no mistake that we're in these times, but David's saying, listen, I, I know where you're at, and hey, you know why he's my refuge, why I trust him now? He reigns. Amen. And shouldn't that bring some peace to us? Amen. Even though we don't understand everything that's going on? You know, Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, said this, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. Or in other words, that's, that's what we base. He's sovereign, he's good, he rules. All things work together for good for those who love God and call it according to his purpose. All things. To conform us to Christ. David, you know, you say in the Lord I take refuge, why? Well, he reigns over all. There's a second truth that surfaces as we work down this psalm. The second is, the Lord, who is our refuge and who reigns, sees and knows everything. Yes, he, does. he sees and knows everything. 
His eyes see, the text says. He sees. He knows. Sovereign King Jesus was not ignorant and wasn't blindsided about what was going on in David's life and what was going on around him. And he is not missing a beat and knowing what's happening in our day and what's going on around us. That's right. But then he has this curious statement after that. His eyes see, and then he says, his eyelids test the children of man. Eyelids. I don't know how many of you were at the children's musical. Some of you were. Three weeks, two or three weeks ago. It was great. On Wednesday night, children were singing. There were 20, 25 kids up there. Uh, and Diane and I were there, and uh, our grandkids were not there, so we didn't have a stake in the, in the program. We were just enjoying it. But I know what it's like to be a parent when you have a kid up there. And something sort of happens. You know, you're seeing the whole group of kids singing, but you're sort of zeroing in with your eyelids looking at that one person, your son or daughter. And you're probably thinking, he's singing, it's great, he's happy, he's not doing anything. And all of a sudden, oh no, he's going to pick his nose. (laughs) Or he's, you know, what's he going off there? And the wife says, oh, he's got to go to the bathroom. Or, you know, why is he jabbing Sally there, you know? And so the difference was just seeing, but actually discerning and looking in those eyes. And what David is saying Listen, God just doesn't see. He, he knows. He sees everything. He, he focuses. He examines. It's best described, I think, what Solomon said in Psalm 521. For man's eyes are before, for man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Big picture, right? And he ponders all his paths. What does it have to do? Well, he goes on and says, well, the Lord tests the righteous. He examines us. And I take it there that he's, he's uh, the word for testing in the Hebrew seems to have the idea that the Lord sort of uses these trials and difficulties to purify us, make us more like Jesus. So he tests us, sort of like a pop quiz. And he does it often, doesn't he? Just see where we are in our sanctification. But then he says this, about the wicked, who he sees, his soul hates the wicked and the one who does violence. Wow. I don't know about you, but that sort of hits me with a kind of a two by four. I mean, I know the Lord hates sin. In fact, you get to Proverbs 6, and uh, there's six things the Lord hates, there's seven that are abomination to him, and then he lists the seven sins, lying, etc., etc. But here David is saying his, his soul hates the wicked and, and those who love violence. Now remember, read that in Psalm, Psalm 10, that earlier Psalm, that the, that the, uh, the wicked sort of think, think uh, God has forgotten us, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. He'll never hold us accountable. But what does God see in sinful man that rebel against him? Well, he sees, first of all, our arrogant rebelling against him and his rule. They start in the garden. We're breathing every heart. The one who created us, who gave us breath, who, who gave us life, and created us to enjoy him and to worship him and to find our satisfaction in him. We've, we've said, no, I'll go my own way. 
In fact, David, you remember in Psalm 10, says the wicked curse and renounce the Lord and the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts say, there is no God. Well, there is a God. In fact, we say that in Romans 1, uh, I've said this before, you know, denouncing God and saying there is no God is not an intellectual problem, it's a moral problem. Because God has clearly revealed himself. I am the creator. You look at the heavens and the earth and say, someone's got to do this, I've made it. And then the Bible says in Romans 1, he suppresses the truth and the righteousness. Right. And he makes this terrible exchange. And we make this terrible exchange where we say, okay, we exchange the glory of an immortal God for an image made to look like man, animal, birds, and reptiles. So God looks, he sees, and he sees the heart of the wicked that David's talking about and sees them in arrogant rebelling against him and his rule. But he also sees this. He sees the rejection of himself expressed in ways that hurt and harm others who are created in his image. We see that. Sin is not just an isolated thing. It affects others. We see that in our culture what's happening. Uh, Tim Chalice makes this point and I've also said to my congregation, if someone can say better than I can, I'm going to use them. I'm not proud. Tim writes, Because sinful people cannot storm the gates of heaven to dethrone and destroy God himself, they turn on what is dearest to him and nearest to him, men and women made in his image. So they act out of their wickedness against other people. They, they hurt them, they harm them, they maim them, maim them they kill them. God sees that. But David understands this. And wicked and they're out to target him. And number three, he sees arrogant rejection of himself expressed in the hatred of his people. The hatred of his people. I mean, the Gospel of John points out Jesus is the light of the world and people hate the light. They want their, We don't want our deeds exposed to sin, so we hate the light and we hate anyone who proclaims the light and lives as the light. What I'm simply saying is, as R.C. Sproul so rightly said, we sort of put some of our sins down in sort of the misdemeanor mode, you know, maybe we just kind of littered, sorry, did that. No, it's cosmic treason. Because the Almighty God who created us. And so David, in verse 6, says, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of the cup. What he's simply saying there is he's saying, I'm not taking this in my own hand, but I know God is holy. I know the wicked. God, you see them. You judge them as you see fit. It's interesting. Let him rain coals on the wicked and sulfur. What does that remind us of? Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, may the wind shall be the portion of the cup. If you read the Psalms in Psalm 1, that first introductory psalm, David, we don't know if David wrote it, maybe someone else, but it says, the wicked are like the chaff which the wind blows away. Listen, I, David's not saying, I'm going to take this revenge in my own. I'm not going to be that. And God is the one that does that. But who wants a God, a king, on the throne who is not going to be just? Who wants a God who's saying, I'm going to let sin run rampant and and my name defamed, and, and, and people hurt and destroyed. But God is a just God. He will do what is right. And, and so David's saying, you know what the God I've trusted? 
He reigns over all, and he sees all, but he is just, and he will judge. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know your heart. Only God does. It's an interesting passage in Romans chapter 2, verse 16. It's sort of a little stunning. Because he's talking about the judgment that will come to the religious person, the Jew. And, he's, and he write, Paul writes this. On the day when, and listen to this phrase, according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What? Gospel? I thought the gospel was good news. Well, it is. <laughs> but you have to have bad news first, right? It's all part of the gospel. And the gospel is without our repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we will face the judgment, rightful judgment of God. But praise God. Jesus stood in our place and died for our sins by his grace and love. And we repent and believe we find our refuge in him. That's the gospel. David writes in Psalm 37, because, you know, we can get a little panicky about what's going on around the world and around our, our culture. And we should breathe. And we should pray. And by the way, we should proclaim the good news, but the good news starts with the bad news. But maybe you're a little panicky here this morning. What David wrote later in Psalm 37, he said, fret not yourself because of evildoers. He said, be not envious of them, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. And I just say something here, because I think sometimes we, maybe us, because we know the Lord, we know the word, it's, us, it's easy for us to kind of throw grenades to everybody else and say, well, look what they're doing. But brothers and sisters, but by the grace of God, we'd be doing the same thing. Amen. And we still sin. We just show mercy and love and proclaim the light in the dark world. Because there is a judge coming, Jesus Christ will come, and he will judge, and he will do what is right. Verse 7. So he's saying, here's why I trust the Lord's my refuge in these dark and perilous times. He reigns over all. He sees all. And he will bring justice to all. But then he says, for the Lord is righteous. And what he's doing there, he's sort of, just let you know, the Lord is righteous. He's just. He has a right to be the judge. He set the standard. He will be fair and just. And then he uses this phrase, he loves righteous deeds. He loves righteous deeds. No, I, I, the world is collapsing around us. Trust me. I could take time to share the decades I've lived and see the culture changing and see that moral oasis kind of dry up. And we can respond in a number of different ways. We, we can flee, like the advisors say, hey, cut and run, David. Now, we wouldn't do that necessarily, but we probably get into this sort of bunker mentality. You know, we're just going to huddle, and, uh, you know, we don't want to get into this messy world. And, and so uh, we'll, we'll certainly lament and be grieved and, about what is happening, what's happening to people, but we sort of uh, keep to ourselves. And that's not what the Scripture teaches us. Or the other stream is, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. 
And, I, and if, sadly, I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen in denominations. I've seen it happen with people. Hey, you know, it's, hey, we'll just join them. Or, well, we'll just compromise a little bit. Some of the the truth of God, so it isn't too costly for us to be lights in the world, but that's not what David's saying. He's saying, listen, you know, the Lord loves righteous deeds, and he wants us as his people not to withdraw, but by faith, trusting God to live out the good works and be a shining light in our dark culture. This is not the time to dim the switch. When I say good works, it's certainly good works as far as helping people, but the good works there, I think, also means we live like Christ, we show them Christ in the light. And they say, oh, what do you have? My my life is absolutely messed up with the sin and everything. What do you have? I've got Jesus. He loves righteous deeds. He wants to see his people live righteous deeds. And it's not the time to dim the switch or hide. It's the time to shine the bright light by the grace of God and the love of Christ and say, I've got good news. I've got good news for you. But the last, this is the fourth point. The upright shall behold his face. The Lord who is our refuge, the one who reigns, who sees all, who is just, promises the righteous we will see his face. Wow. What a what a truth. Dane Ortland wrote a book. Wrote a book of the Psalms. It's Psalm 150 Psalms, it's 150 chapters. Each chapter takes you read the Psalm out of ESV and then he comments on about a couple a couple of paragraphs and applies it. It's interesting, his book of the Psalms, he entitles it, In the Lord I Take Refuge. But here's what he writes. He asks the question, what does it mean that believers will see the face of God? He writes, it means we become ourselves, who we truly are. It means dawn will rise on the dark gray of this fallen world. It means final rest will be ours. It means we will be with the one for, of whom even the best earthly relationships and friendships are only a faint glimpse and to whom the most sublime earthly joys are finally pointing to the very end of the Bible that puts it this way. Revelation 22.4 They will see my face. Amen. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is the perilous times. It's tough to live in the shining light. We can be fearful and panicky, but David's saying, hey, trust in the Lord who is my, my refuge. He reigns. He sees all. He's a God of justice and judgment, ultimately, and we will see his face. Right, Lord. So listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, the one who is our refuge today in the midst of this dark world, will be our refuge forever. Amen. We will have our reward. And what the reward is, we will see Jesus and become like him, and we will see him as he is. And so, let's live on the edge. Let's be the shining lights. 
We only have a short time here, and, and then we're gone. And who knows when the Lord's going to come back? But we have the privilege to live in the, one of the darkest spaces of our human history in the United States, certainly. And we can be shining lights, and the reward will be Jesus himself. And I'm hoping he says to me, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. For in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hands are pleasures forevermore. Gospel has hope, doesn't it? And that kind of drives, actually should drive us in our how we live. And Paul wrote in, the, in Romans 8, 18, you probably memorized this, he says, for the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to follow. Amen. Now, the sufferings there could be, you know, health issues or financial issues, relational issues, and there's a lot of suffering that comes to the fallen world. I think what he's talking about in the context of Romans 8, the sufferings, we're suffering for Christ, we're suffering for righteousness. And then he writes kind of the cap it off in Colossians 3, 3 and 4. It says to us as believers, for you have died and your life is hidden, hidden with Christ and God. Sounds like refuge, doesn't it? Security. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's why we can trust him as our refuge, our strength. He reigns over all. He sees all. He knows what's going on. He will judge injustice. And most of all, he is our eternal reward. We can trust him, have courage, and proclaim his good news to a lost world. Let's pray.